Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine, and this week we're talking to the human rights lawyer, Adam Wagner, about how, as he sees it, a year of lockdown has battered our liberal democracy. As the lockdown begins to lift across the UK, many of us will soon get our personal liberties back. But as Adam writes in the cover essay for the new issue of Prospect, the past year has seen Boris Johnson's government play so fast and loose with Parliament and the law that we may struggle to recover our standing as free citizens. Thank you for joining us, Adam. How are you doing? Morning. Good. How are you? Yeah, but I have to say, Adam, some people might think you're a bit of a misery guts here. We've got the spring here. We're allowed to have friend round for a glass of wine in the garden. Everything's looking rosy for the first time in Yonks. And yet you're telling us this is exactly the moment to worry and that, uh, you know, all freedom's gone to hell in a handcart. Why is that? Yeah, well, I think the weather's a pretty good metaphor here because on my weather forecast, it's showing snow for Friday. Um, and we, we've always got to be wary, although I think psychologically we always we have this tendency of thinking, well, what is happening now is the thing that's going to keep happening forever. It's quite obvious to me, having looked at this in a, in, in a lot of detail over the past year, that the way in which our liberal democracy has handled this pandemic is going to leave some quite significant injuries to our liberal democracy. Um, it's a bit like, you know, we, we, I, I sometimes use use an analogy of a of society being like a big ship and you need a big strong ship to get through stormy weather but this ship has been battered there was the word you use and i and i agree with that it's been battered from all sides over the past year and it's actually taken on quite a lot of water and particularly under the waterline where a lot of the passengers don't go but you know if if you've ever seen the film titanic you know that's where the leaks that's where the leaks start and i'm not saying our our, our society is has hit a big iceberg and is about to drown but i do think that the if we don't really engage with the fact that we are taking on water that there have been we've taken some you know real injuries to the hull if we don't understand that then we are not going to be able to repair them and the next crisis will come along and our ship will not will not survive 
Okay, all right. So we can enjoy this glass of wine with a friend for the first time in ages up on the up on the deck, maybe with the sun there. But but there's there's trouble brewing ahead. So that's looking forward. Let's just rewind the tape though, because you're I think the only person really who's followed the whole process of this lawmaking thing all the way through the lockdown, which has only been a year. But like when I read your piece, I kind of feel like it's been ten. There's been so many twists and turns. I think when the government, in some ways, arguably a kind of intermittently libertarian government, looked at what was happening in Wuhan, sort of the thought was lockdowns couldn't possibly happen here. We're a kind of, you know, uh, community of free-born Englishmen and all, all the rest of it. But then it did happen astonishingly quickly. So how was freedom abolished? Um, well, I'm not sure freedom was abolished, but I, I agree with you at the time. And I, I was recording, I recorded a podcast, I think on about the 15th of March um, with Adam Gopnik, who's a um, sort of writer about, uh, American writer about about liberalism. And we mused about the, you know, almost in a sort of, we scoffed at the idea that there could be these uh, China style lockdowns in the West um, but it all, as as you said, things ha- move very quickly with with these kind of global crises, and things did move very quickly. The, the the we saw in France and in Spain, all of a sudden there were lockdowns in the style, um, if not exactly the same and not quite as harsh, but in the style of what was going on in China. Um, and our government, I think, over the course of about ten days, um, and that's what I, I chart towards the beginning of the of the article from about, I think, from the 12th of March to the 23rd of March, um, did a complete vault fast. They went from thinking that we'll be able to maybe shut sh- schools, maybe prevent large gatherings, to let's stop people leaving their home without a reasonable excuse. Let's stop people gathering in groups, you know, out even outdoors of more than a few people. It really was the most extraordinary 10 days and probably the most important 10 days in terms of our liberties um, in, in modern history. And, and, and just how was it done? Because as you say, you know, this was a Napoleonic flip, um, you know, instead of things being legal unless they were banned, suddenly everything was banned unless it was legal. Sounds like, you know, uh, something that would take a while to do and yet it was done so quickly. How? Well, well, I think that, that was Matt Hancock's expression, apparently. Apparently, he said, I want this to be like Nap- Nap- Napoleonic approach, which is, you know, it's a caricature of the Napoleonic code, but it's the idea that you co- you encode all human activity into law. So you have to look to the law to just see whether something's legal. Whereas in, in our f- so-called freedom-loving British history, we tend to think that things are only illegal if they are expressly made illegal so it's quite a sort of different approach but the law was made incredibly quickly I mean my understanding is that on the 23rd of March when the Prime Minister announced it there was no law um, because we the Coronavirus Act was going through Parliament but it hadn't been designed to create a lockdown it, it if you read it it doesn't work like that so all of a sudden there was this scrambling to try and find a way in which they could lawfully prevent people leaving their homes lawfully prevent people gathering lawfully close most of the businesses in the uk down and they they found the public health act 1984 which is which was a sort of had been used a bit during the HIV crisis, if you watch It's a Sin, you'll you'll hear reference to the Public Health Act um, and particularly regulations made to the Public Health Act. But in actual fact, since the 80s, it had been very significantly 
amended to increase the powers that a government could have access to through regulations, through secondary legislation. And that's what the government did. So between the 23rd and the 26th, they drafted this 11-page law, which stopped people leaving their homes, which stopped people gathering, which closed businesses. And 11 pages on the 26th were published. And at the very same moment, in fact, an hour and, an hour and a half before it was laid before Parliament, it came into force. So legislate first and very quickly and ask questions if you're going to dare ask questions at all later yeah i mean and and that's been the um position with the throughout really the this this last year i mean there's been something like 70 changes to that law all through secondary legislation so all through quite literally matt hancock and it was almost it's almost always the health secretary signing the piece of paper with the law on it and all of a sudden it becomes the law like he's like almost like a magic spell he speaks and the law becomes law um in fact it's not like the, the magic spell it's like the beginning of genesis where you know that the, the, there was the word and then everything existed the word of god and everything existed so it's a and, and i joke a bit but it is quite a godlike power to be able to make law by speaking by signing a piece of paper and that's what we we've seen and the the, the way in which it's been done has been to effectively bypass Parliament. So the ordinary way of lawmaking is that Parliament is that the government drafts a bill um, and, and, and the Parliament considers it, debates it, maybe amends it, and then votes on it to decide whether it becomes the law. That is certainly the way we make criminal laws um, in the United Kingdom. But this, again, it flips that presumption. It flips the presumption towards the minister makes the law and then parliament four weeks later or even more um, gives it a rubber stamp without the possibility of amendments. I mean, you've got this lovely phrase in there um, that MPs prorogued themselves. People remember that, like, some of us have been a bit worried about Boris Johnson and parliament since he unlawfully closed it down to get some extra points in the Brexit crisis. But you sort of don't see this as necessarily something that Boris Johnson and others are doing to Parliament. You think MPs almost don't care? I don't know if they don't care, but they've, they've become supine um, to, you know, they've become like, like the boiled frogs that slowly have become used to this bypassing of their constitutional role. Um, and I think they have, in a way, prorogued themselves because they have allowed the government to legislate in this way. Now, there is there is a, there is an argument, um, and the government will certainly make this argument that this is the only way you can legislate in such a fast-moving crisis. That it would be absurd to subject, you know, decisions that have to be made very quickly as cases go up or cases go down. And that's, I the, was going to ask that the, because you know, yeah, you've got the level of parliamentary scrutiny you usually yeah. get. Yeah, and, 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 and I think there is quite a simple answer to that, which is that we've seen over and over again in recent years with Brexit and with COVID that, you know, norms can be adapted to fit changing realities. And it would have been very straightforward if the government had said, look, we need to, we need to do a deal with you, Parliament. We want you involved, but it can't be the usual, you know, months of wrangling. So there has to be, say, seven-day process whereby this will go to committees it will be debated there will be maybe a smaller delegated group that does most of the heavy lifting cross-party and then we will come come in at the end with an amended version and then you know hopefully the parliament will will vote this in so i, I don't think that it's not obviously not beyond the wit of man or woman to 
do this. Um, it's just that government has decided this is the easiest way to do it. And Parliament has said, yes, please, no problem. We'll go off and, you know, worry about other things. And that, I, I think, is really deeply concerning from a rule of law perspective and from a democratic perspective. Let's just talk about whether, I mean, sometimes things, the hurry was really quite desperate, wasn't it? And, and, and like from when we're looking at this from a kind of epidemiology point of view rather than a law point of view, you know, like there's been calculations that the two week delay in imposing the lockdown in March last year might have cost 20,000 deaths. So if you're saying, oh, we wanted a kind of accelerated parliamentary process that would have taken a week could still mean people dying. And so what do you say to an MP who said, well, I just wanted to help ministers whiz this along because it was so obviously necessary? I, I, I have no issue, really, with the 26th of March. I think the 26th of March last year was a very special situation and a very difficult one, which I can entirely understand why the government acted in the way it did and why Parliament allowed it to. But when you got to the summer... Um, and you got to this sort of, you know, 25 different sets of local coronavirus regulations over the summer, you know, creating this patchwork of restrictions. Then you had two successive lockdowns, which, were, you know, everybody could see coming. It was it, it was barn door obvious in the autumn and it was barn door obvious even more so in January that we were going coming to another lockdown. There's, I, in my view, there's no justification at all for allowing those laws to come into, to, to be published and come into force the the moment before you know no working days before I think the last lockdown we had the law five o'clock on the Friday and it was coming into effect on the Monday morning so that easily could have been dealt with differently as could you know hotel quarantine rules were brought in like this everybody knew you know it took them I, I think a, a nine months to enact hotel quarantine whereas it was being done in New Zealand nine months before um self-isolation um, for self-isolation to quarantine when you have the virus that didn't come until September um the you know, the vaccine passports, is that going to come in through this emergency legislation? You see that you see the point. Yeah. And you, you, you mentioned a, a pretty poignant example about kids being locked up, traveller kids, didn't you, in uh, hotels? I mean, I mean, we, we, we are now detaining children with through a secondary piece of secondary legislation that has never that, that has not. I don't think it's I think it has been voted in, but it wasn't, you know, it, I, I, it's actually a really good example. Because what the government has, the government doesn't doesn't just do this and not listen to criticism. It does quite often change the rules. So that hotel quarantine rule came in with no exception, no formal exception for people who were so ill that they couldn't quarantine in a hotel. You know, if they had cancer or were getting chemotherapy or that. There was so there was no legal way for them not to do that. And there's a ten thousand pound fine at the end of that. The government quietly. Uh, a, a, a week ago brought in an exception for those people now that is the i mean it's so obvious that i, I mean i'm involved in litigation about that issue but it's, it was obvious to everybody at the very moment those, that law came in that it, there was no exception for people who couldn't quarantine because of for health reasons and yet it was all sort of you know waved through there was no debate about it there was no questioning and that includes children what about a, a severely ill child who was having chemotherapy could not have avoided hotel quarantine law lawfully 
being quarantined by private security, you know, at, at some hotel near an airport with no scrutiny. I just think it's totally extraordinary and, it, and it's quite wrong. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So... I guess a lot of it comes down to the the judgment you've got to make about how necessary or not all this stuff is, you know. And you do say somewhere in the article, I'm not here arguing about the necessity of these kind of broad brush uh, laws, more more about the way they were made. Is there a nagging doubt in your mind, though, that like a sort of full legal lockdown was needed? Or do you think it might be it would have been just as effective to have gone through kind of, you know, quite heavy public education campaigns, whatever. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the, the risk for, of me opining on that is that I'm, out, I'm, I'm moving out of my lane. Um, and, and I've been really trying to be really careful. And it's really difficult because when you're involved in this debate, as I have been over the past year, you get buffeted from either side. You get buffeted by the by the libertarian sort of this Lord Sumption type people who say, look, lockdowns just aren't justified. And why aren't you as a human rights lawyer coming out against this terrible um, imposition on our liberties, this, this severe um extraordinary set of rules that have never been justified you get buffeted by you know people who just don't believe in the virus and then on the other side people who say you know we, we should have locked down much earlier there is a the, the right to life is more important than any other right what's the point of other rights without the right to life we should lock down hard early and until this virus is gone um and you know, as as unfashionable as it might be to say this um, as a human rights lawyer, and I know that, or maybe not unfashionable is the wrong word, but I, I'm not going to fall into the caricature that's um, created by, I guess, by critics of human rights lawyers and say, yes, I've got the answers, not just to the legal and constitutional issues, which are my area, but to the epidemiological and psychological questions. Um, so as much as that sounds sounds like a bit of a fudge but i i think it's actually quite important to have in a way avoid unless there is some so there is an answer so obvious that it cannot possibly there can't possibly really be another one you know um if something is i, I think we, we uh, 
I, I, I mentioned in the article that, you know, the, the 10 p.m. curfew. And I think pr- the outdoor protest is another one where I'm I'm actually more comfortable getting into the epidemiological side because I don't think there is an epidemiological argument against socially distanced outdoor protests. You know, Patrick Valance has said very clearly, we've looked at the evidence from New York where there were big protests and there isn't any obvious evidence of those being spreader events. So I think you can, I'll dip into it, but that overall question of whether lockdown as such was the best way to go, I I think is really one for the public inquiry. It's one for the um, epidemiologists, you know, and, and not for me. Let's let's focus in on um, protest and indeed, like having talked about the way the law was made, the way that the law is enforced, which is very timely, both with Bristol and then the Sarah Everard vigils, which you've been involved in. So, first of all, do you think what the police has been doing in these cases is lawful? And if not, like, why have they got ahead of themselves? I, I think probably it has hasn't been lawful. Um, I am acting for the um, the people who organise the, the vigil, but I do. Th- I mean, I've been saying this before, way before I was acting for them, is that the police have taken a view that all protest is banned under the the lockdown regulations, and in fact, you know, since the beginning of the lockdown in March, that has generally been the police view, unless there's a specific exception. Um, protest is banned and that is the definitely the napoleonic approach to the law um but the 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 inconvenient thing for that approach is that we have something called the human rights act which is primary legislation unlike these um these regulations which which impose the lockdown and says very clearly people have a right to freedom of expression and freedom of association now that right is qualified and it means that in in it can be limited for reasons of public health. So, you know, a group of people who, 100 people go and pack themselves in a room to protest or, you know, storm parliament during the COVID epidemic that potentially will be um, unlawful. But I I think that there is a, a strong argument that the police had a duty to facilitate safe outdoor protest, even whilst protest wasn't a specific exception to to the gatherings rules some of them don't much like protest um maybe at the at, at the best of times but you've spoken to quite a lot of the coppers haven't you and, and you found them to be quite a mixed a mixed bunch maybe important not to generalize yeah i mean i i asked um police to serving police to contact me privately which a lot of them did obviously it's not a representative sample but a lot did and they said you know we we on the whole we we were very uncomfortable with being this sort of this public health role we find the law the, the rules as confusing as everybody else the constant changes um some of them said they're ashamed at the more officious um approaches to enforcement which should, i don't think are the norm but you know we've seen them in particular forces such, you know derbyshire as, a, as an example some of the western southwestern forces as well um this is sort of you know very harsh approach but you know legally wrong as well um stopping people going to beauty spots that sort of thing and i think that the police have been in a really difficult situation i don't think it's just in the uk by the way there's some i've I've read some good research about policing worldwide have found this role extremely hard to fit into because they're not used to it they don't want to put themselves in the situation of you know in, in an antagonistic situation with people who aren't normally the focus of the police 
just going about their ordinary lives trying to get by. They don't want to be put into this antagonistic situation. And some police have said to me they're very worried about what, you know, if you talk about the ship of state again taking on water, the the police force is a big part of that ship of state. Um, and they don't want to be come out of this so with their relationship with the public so damaged that they can't go about their ordinary role, their important role of, of preventing crime. Do you think when you look at, there's been some very troubling images out of Bristol where there was some very bad behaviour by some protesters, it's important to say, uh, but also it seems some fairly bad behaviour by the police. Do you think there's a danger that, uh, like police who are of a different type of police from the ones who've been contacting you, are uh, in this environment going a bit wild or do you think it's better to separate those two things? I think that with protest, you always have the difficult problem of what happens when a peaceful protest turns can turn a bit to violence or what happens when you are in a situation where the peaceful protest was going fine, but the police take a, a sort of antagonistic approach and create an environment which are quite, create a quite different environment. And it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. If the police turn up in riot gear and they are aggravated, it can become a different kind of protest. I think those are all difficult operational issues. But I think what this really comes down to, what's happened in the past few weeks with protest, is that the police have treated peaceful protest as being illegal. And once you get into that situation, you it's you uh, you always raise the antagonism um, to a level where you could end up with violence. And I'm not saying the police are always to blame for that. I think there's an element of, you know, th th we, we saw the, the scenes of, you know, people smashing the windows at a police station, which is which is wrong. But I do think the police probably well i'll tell you i'll tell you this that there's there's uh, the metropolitan police officer i think was was the gold lead at the um the, the sarah everett vigil which went so wrong i noticed that he liked a tweet which said something like you know the politicians set these laws and then they blame us for carrying them out and and i think that that probably gets to the heart of what police are feeling at the moment which is they feel they've been sold down the river to go back to my water analogy by the Home Secretary, who has, um, you know, she, she's managed to be seen to be staying above all this, but she has quite clearly been saying since the beginning of this lockdown, go in hard, enforce this lockdown. And I think she's probably also been saying protest is unlawful under these regulations. And, and I think she probably bears quite a bit of responsibility for what's happened. So let's like just have a final word on where all this goes next and in a way back to what we said at the very beginning, which is, you know, the country is unlocking. You're worried about the Home Secretary. You're worried about parts of the police. Just tell us what you see happening, perhaps, or the worst things that you think could happen in the next couple of years um, as a result of what we've been through. And, you know, once the lockdown regulations themselves are happily and hopefully forgotten. Look, I, I, I think, you know, the, one of the points I say, I raise at the end of the article is I think that the, you know, the, it's time to start looking at a, a code, codified constitution. But, but actually, there are measures we can put in place which are far less than that to try and fix these holes. I think we have to think very carefully and look very carefully at these laws which allow ministers to make decrees that become criminal laws. Um, such as the Public Health Act, because I think they've been abused um, during this crisis. I think they, you know, there's lots of literature about how they are being expanded 
over in lots of other areas. Brexit, the Brexit legislation is the most obvious example. And I think that the whilst we've got the public attention, you know, which relatively you don't have on these kind of issues, where the, where you can give visceral examples, such as the right to protest, such as the right, you know, these these COVID laws, I think it's important to roll back some of the um, powers that ministers have. But you think they want to widen? Do you actually do you think some of them want to widen their powers? Yeah, I think I think I think there's I think there's a general pressure from the from the sense from the executive to widen their powers that's been there for quite a long time and it's been working. Um, I also I'm going to say something really unfashionable here in the, with the current government, which is that I think the courts need to take a bigger role. And I know you know people say, oh, well, the courts should be getting involved in politics and all this kind of stuff. But I think it's you know th- there was a there was a Supreme Court case um, a few months ago about insurance policies relating to COVID, which used a special procedure which allowed a point of general principle to go quickly up to the Supreme Court to be decided on whether businesses business interruption policies covered COVID. It's a- I think it's absolutely ridiculous that there isn't the same kind of process for general human rights issues where you have to bring these very cumbersome cases which involve individuals that quite often by the time you get to court the because the individual is no longer affected by the decision because for whatever reason things have moved on the court says well you know we've we've you know there's no point us looking at this now and and it's no point us looking at an incredibly important issue um, just because the individual is no longer affected and I really think that the courts have ducked these issues over COVID. Um, I think in other jurisdictions, you've seen quite a different approach. Even in Scotland, you've seen a case about COVID um, regulations shutting all churches, synagogues and mosques. And that being the the Scottish courts found that unlawful from a constitutional perspective. I think the English courts have been cowed in the most part by the, the, the mood music from the government over judicial review and human rights. And I think, you know, they've got a really important role to play in scrutinising. If Parliament is going to be proroguing itself again, then unfortunately the buck stops with the courts. And, you know, that, that if the executive doesn't want that, maybe they should involve Parliament more. OK, well, on that call for eternal vigilance against um, Home Secretary and some other authorities you're quite worried about, we'll say thanks very much, Adam. Do read Adam's piece, which is up now on the prospect website it's called taking liberties thank you very much for joining us and if you've enjoyed the podcast do leave us a rating and a review goodbye stay safe and see you next week